And our surgeon in chief came to me and said, we have this opportunity to do a double hand transplant on a boy, but it's like a really outside chance and it may never happen, but will you give us the okay to do it? I was like, absolutely. If we could be the first to do something like this for a little boy, of course. And four months later, against all odds, it happened. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm sitting down with the CEO of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Madeline Bell. The Children's Hospital, more commonly known as CHOP, receives more than one million visits every year. And Madeline is the one making many of the big decisions, like whether to try and complete the world's first double hand transplant. But when she first walked into CHOP as an employee, Madeline was a pediatric nurse, fresh out of college, who had just scored her dream job. Today, she's captain of the ship. And while the journey wasn't always glamorous, for Madeline, it was a way to make life better for kids. Madeline Bell's story is now on Philly Who. So do you remember that kid in your biology class who really loved dissecting frogs? They never got scared when they saw blood or guts, and you always kind of wondered how they could stay so calm? Madeline Bell was that kid. I do remember one time my brother accidentally put his hand through the glass back door, and my mom screamed for me. (laughs) How old were you? I probably was like 10. (laughs) My dad was at work. My sister was, you know, littler than my brother. And I remember that. And I remember thinking like, oh, get a towel, wrap it. Let's pick out any big pieces (laughs) of glass. So your parents saw this in you early on. Yeah, at least my mom did. Wow. That's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. I also read that your parents used to introduce you a certain way when introducing you. Is that right? Oh, yeah. They used to say, this is our daughter, Madeline. She's raising us. <laughs> why, did, I, why did they say that? I guess as the oldest child, I was a bit of a know-it-all and I would correct them. I would correct the spelling or grammar or I would challenge them in some way about something like that's not right. And my parents were young when I was born. So I think that was uh, part of it. Yeah. Here's who's in charge. You knew you wanted to be a nurse. I did. When I was younger, I would say a nurse or a marine biologist because I liked scuba diving and my dad used to take us scuba diving. But then I realized, hmm, you know, I live in Pennsylvania. It's not going to be something I can do all the time. And not that I always wanted to stay in Pennsylvania, but realizing that I wasn't next to an ocean. When I was in college, I was going to change from nursing to pre-med. And I went to the dean who ended up being a lifelong friend and mentor to me, the dean of the College of Nursing at Villanova. And I told her that I was going to change my major. And she said, if all of the leaders in nursing became physicians, then we wouldn't have leaders in nursing. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, this is what I've always wanted to do. And I can be a leader in nursing and not have to be a physician. Yeah. At this point, do you also know that you want to get into pediatric nursing? Yeah, I don't even remember a time wanting to do anything but pediatric nursing. I always just wanted to work with children. What? Why? What is it about it? When I compared to working with children to adults, when you're working with adults and they've had surgery, your major focus is helping them to get out of bed and start moving. 
when a child has surgery, your major focus is keeping them down <laughs> and not from running around and opening up their wounds. So there's something just so optimistic. Wow. You know, they don't really bring that mental baggage to illness. Wow. When they're sick, they're sick. And as soon as they start feeling better, they act better. And it's also an investment in the future. As you think about it, if you're helping a child to be healthy, you're helping them to have a lifetime of contributions, you know, to their family, to to society. Um, it's really actually kind of a good feeling. Yes. Wow. And so senior year, you applied to be a nurse at CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And what did they tell you? Well, I applied in November, I remember. And they said, we have a waiting list. So it's a nine month waiting list. And we'll keep you on the waiting list. So I applied other places and I got jobs at other places. And probably a month before I graduated, they said, you're off the waiting list, but you have to work permanent night shift. And you have to start as soon as you graduate. And so many of my friends, we had a shore house. They were going to start their jobs in September. They were going to go to the shore for the summer. And I said, well, this is really what I want. And I'll just do it. I think I just turned 22. And, you know, working permanent nights, having two other roommates who worked during the day and not nursing in other fields. And it was not the best for my social life. Yeah. You're missing happy hours. You're, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so you gave up that summer of, I don't even know, fun employment where, you know, kids before they start their actual lives get to go and gallivant and celebrate being graduated. It sounds like you wouldn't change that. No, I mean, in retrospect, if I had waited till September, I would have ended up somewhere else yeah. and, you know, wouldn't be the CEO of CHOP. I was focused on that and I was focused on learning how to sleep during the day, which is actually not easy. Right. That's a skill in itself. Mm -hmm. And so you were a nurse for several years at CHOP. I loved being a nurse and still miss it. And I did it for six years and beyond Working at CHOP, I also did home care nursing on the side when I was oh, wow. an administrator just to keep my hand in it and yeah. took care of kids who were at home. But I started to ask myself the questions like, why do we do things the way we do, either at CHOP at that time or just the greater system of healthcare? And I thought, rather than asking myself the questions all the time or raising concerns about it, that I should do something about it and try to be part of creating the system of healthcare, yeah. whether it be at a hospital or, you know, at the macro level, at the national level. So I really wanted to have impact in a different way. Yeah. Was there any trepidation towards giving up being one of the boots on the ground and having that every day, you know, helping children? Very much so. I felt very, you know, unsure about it. I missed it very much. And so that's why I quickly went back into doing home care nursing on the side. So I could easily say, call an agency and say, oh, I would like to work within three miles of my house, take care of children with these problems. And here, you know, I could do it Friday night, Saturday or Sunday. And I would be able to name my location and my patient. So I left CHOP in 1989 and came back in 95. And I guess probably that year I stopped doing because I realized that I was coming back in administration. I had three kids at home. I was pursuing a graduate degree, so I figured something had to give. Jeez, all at once, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, my goodness. Each of those things is a thing on its own. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Know, four, five of them. How did CHOP call you back? 
Well, I remember getting a call from the person who ended up being my boss at the time saying, you know, would you like to come back to CHOP? We're looking for somebody to oversee the home care department. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to do more than that. I would like to help you develop a case management department. So if I can do both of those things, I will come back. And the home care department at that time had been really losing money. It was not self-sustaining. And so I came back to really help them get that back on track. And that actually got me noticed by mm -hmm. the chief operating officer at that time. And after a year or so of doing that, I was promoted to yeah. an executive position. How at this point did the fulfillment of making systemic change and process change compare to that everyday boots on the ground fulfillment? As a nurse, you're part of a team, but you know, you're actually touching patients, you're interacting with their families. Um, so there's a, a real reward and gratification. And certainly when you see someone get better, that's yeah. a, a great reward. But it's really different to be managing people, managing systems, you know, creating policies and implementing the strategy. It's just a different level yeah. of impact. Do you have any advice for someone who may be a clinician today who might want to get onto the more administrative process type side? The first thing people will say to me is, oh, do I need to get an MBA or do I need to get an advanced degree? And I said, yes, that's important. But what you really need to do is find somebody who will mentor you and somebody who will give you your first opportunity. But the first thing you need to do is to tell people this is what you want to do and just put it out there and develop a network of people and just tell people I want to do this. I want to manage people. I want to be in an, on the administrative side. And then when open opportunities occur, They'll they will remember that conversation. Right. So you've got to create that first opportunity for yourself. Yeah. People don't know that you want it. How can they give it to you? Right. So you bounced around in quite a few roles between coming back to CHOP in 1995 and then becoming CEO in 2015, 20 years in many, many different roles, some promotions, some lateral moves. What's an example of one role that was particularly challenging? What am I doing? How did I wind up here? I remember one in 1998 when Children's Hospital of Philadelphia had acquired Children's Seashore House, which at that time was a separate hospital. And it was a rehab hospital for children who need physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. And they became part of CHOP. And I remember our CEO saying, well, you're, they've just lost a lot of money and your job is to integrate them into CHOP. and." reduce that loss in one year. And I remember that conversation feeling like, wow, this is really overwhelming. I turned the home care department around, but this is a, a whole hospital. It's a lot more complicated. And that journey that I went through and that reassurances that I got that it's just like, you got to do this one step at a time and build on your last increment. I learned a lot about culture more than anything. And I learned about the differences of how to recognize another organization's culture and then how to bring that, you know, your culture together with their culture. Right. Um, so I think that was one really informative um, opportunity that was really overwhelming to me. And I learned through my mistakes and through asking other people. Um, and then the other example was um, sometime in the early 2000s, I was asked to take over revenue cycle, so billing and patient billing and collections. And I had never done that before. And I just thought, wow, this is just something new and a great learning opportunity. It's a technical thing, 
But leadership really transcends technical areas. So what you do as a leader is the same. It doesn't really matter. I can learn the technical piece by the from the people who talk, who who report to me, and I can learn the technical piece from other people. And so I did that. And it was a really good learning experience. And at the time, this was not about chess moves, like saying, oh, if I learn revenue cycle, I can be the COO or CEO someday. It was just saying, hey, I'm going to take a lateral move. I'm going to learn something different. And I'm going to use the basic leadership you know, principles that I've used in other circumstances and just learn the technical aspects of it. You know, it, you may not even thinking about it, but it, the last thing that a patient receives from you is the bill. And doing that right and in a empathetic way, in a way that values what their financial circumstances, that whole conversation is the last impression that you leave on a patient. And so it's really important. And of course, it's very important to the hospital that you do it right. So you get revenue for the hard work that you've done. Well, I would say the whole idea of being a CEO came to me through other people. And that is something that I really try to work with people to convince them not to do is to have other people believe in them before they believe in themselves. But that was my experience. And so I was the chief operating officer for eight years. I loved that job. I felt happy in that role and didn't really aspire to be the CEO or think that it was a perfect fit for me. And then I started having other children's hospitals recruit me as the CEO. And so many people, you know, were reaching out to me saying, we want you to be our CEO. And then I started to step back and I went on some interviews and that's always a really great self-exploration process as you prepare as you reflect on what you've said and the impression you've made, for me, that made me believe like, oh, wow, this is actually, they think I can do it. Now I think I can do it, which is the opposite of what I coach people <laughs> to say, you have to believe it in your head and convince yourself before you can convince other people. I would say that's how I arrived at it, but yeah. it's not how I think people should arrive. If you could have sent a message back in time to that Madeline the first day when she did walk in for the very first time and said that that moment would happen. What do you think she would have said? <laughs> Absolutely no way. You got <laughs> the wrong don't. person. <laughs> Please you, no. <laughs> you got the wrong person. I just want to do a good job and take care of children. And I don't understand this whole system. And I'll just come in and get my assignment and do my job. That was, a, you know, obviously that was in my head when yeah. I was a young nurse. What would you say either as a CEO or, or prior, has been one of the most challenging days that you've experienced? I believe that I have challenging days every day. You know, I always say to people, you're as good as the people who work for you. So if, the, the, and they're not a good reflection on you. And if you're not happy with them, you know, you own it. And so you have to do something about it. And I think that's the most challenging part about being a leader and leading a group of more than 16,000 people is that getting everyone to row together is is a challenge for most people. I think what makes it easier for me is that everyone who works there has chosen to work with children wherever you work. You've chosen to work at a place that cares for children. So there's something very unifying about that and that people who work at CHOP are very mission-driven. But like I said, we don't know what comes into our door or comes through the helicopter or the ambulance or anything that there's no way to predict 
what's going to happen in a course of a day. Can you talk about, it's a cliche word, but work-life balance, right? So you have a large family, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Very, seven kids? Yes. They're all grown. Youngest is 25. You've raised seven children while working through this career at CHOP. First off, I guess, did motherhood change your outlook at all in working with, with children over the years? Oh, definitely. I think before I was a mom and I was taking care of patients, I did feel empathetic towards the mom and dads, but I didn't really understand. And then as soon as I had a child, anybody that I took care of from my oldest son that was the same age, Mm. I would get teary. It was really, it was an adjustment period, but it did help me, I believe. Yeah. Oh, it's always better to have more empathy, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's right. And so how challenging has it been to, because when you operate a large prestigious organization with that many people, and also have a, a large family, it must be difficult to balance both of those. I would cook four or five meals on Sundays and, you know, put them in containers. Oh, and wow. We were very committed to eating dinner as a family every night and giving the opportunity for everybody to tell their stories from the day and wow. reinforce, you know, what's important for us, for the kids to know. Some of it they didn't like. <laughs> And, you know, we had to sit down and look at the calendar every Sunday and we had a very big calendar with giant blocks. Wow. And this is before all the electronic stuff. And we would just say, like, who can go to, you know, which kid's sporting event or, you know, after school practice or whatever. And so, you know, you just have to be organized and have good systems. And I'm married to a wonderful man who's a great team player and partner. He's a pediatrician, so he knows, you know. It was very nice to have a pediatrician in the house, but I was always the one where focused on, you know, giving them over the counter drugs and making them feel better. And my husband was always like, ah, that, that has no efficacy. That, that drug doesn't, you know, that doesn't work. (laughs) You're the admin and you're the doctor. Yes. (laughs) That's great. Can you give me an example of one particular child's life that you've seen touched recently as your time as CEO? I recall one family, somebody that I know And I got a call, I often do, to say that somebody who's a friend of a friend or somebody's family member is at the hospital. And I got a call like that and said, you know, her grandchild had been transported from a community hospital to CHOP. I went into the room and the child had just had a cardiac arrest, was very, very, very sick, was in a coma. And... The first thing I thought about for the woman who I knew, who's the grandmother and her daughter, the mom of the the child was, well, I need to help them because this is not going to have a good outcome. Mm-hmm. I just need to help them figure out, you know, how to cope through this and to start grasping the idea that he's not going to live. Yeah. For a week or more, I would see them every day and he was not any better. And then one day he turned the corner and woke up. And three days later, he went home fine without any, any support at all. He didn't need any rehab. He didn't need anything. And I remember going to the intensive care unit and saying to all the doctors and nurses, like, you guys are amazing. Cause in my head, I didn't think he was going to live. And they said, oh yeah, we didn't either, <laughs> but we did everything right. we were supposed to do. And this is a situation where there has been a good outcome. And so because I knew the family, it's those moments where you get to see that up close and personal and the family just doesn't know yeah. what's going to happen. And then they find out that their child, you know, had arrested and 
so many people are around the bed and it's so scary. So those are the stories that make me motivated to just keep doing what I'm doing to yeah. make sure that the folks in the intensive care units and everywhere else in the hospital can do what they're doing. Yeah. At a children's hospital, you're going to have instances where you lose a child and, you know, you're not supposed to lose a child. How have you managed to cope with that being a part of your everyday life? Well, people ask all the time when you're a doctor or nurse or you're at CHOP working, you know, how do you do it? And I think when you're in the moment, you just don't think about doing anything but what's in the best interest of the child and the family. And regardless of the outcome, you're just always trying to put your best effort forward. Some of the most gratifying letters that I receive are letters from families whose child has died at CHOP. And they tell me what a wonderful experience that we help them through the dying process with music therapy and dignity. And we, I just got a note the other day where the mom wanted to be in bed with the child. And so we figured out how to get a wider bed for them within two hours of her request, which is a big deal because there's not a lot of wide beds for children. And so when people say to me that they appreciate it the way we help their child die, that is the ultimate compliment. Because it's the last outcome that they wanted and that we wanted, but the way that it was done was done in a way that provided a good memory for them and left them them with a good feeling about how we helped them wow. through it. That's incredible. What is the significance to you of Philadelphia? Well, I love Philadelphia. I live in Philadelphia. I work in Philadelphia. I love the fact that the city I live in is so much a part of history and the place I work is so much a part of history because it's the first children's hospital in the country. What would you say sets the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia apart from the rest of children's hospitals in the country or world? Well, a big part of what we do is we actually create discoveries and breakthroughs for tomorrow's bedside care. So we're really informing the future of healthcare for children. Our priority is investing in that research so that we can cure, you know, find better treatments for childhood diseases. So in many ways, we're motivated to put ourselves out of business. Right. Our doctors are scientists. So they're constantly asking questions and creating the cutting edge on every area. Yeah, I guess the idea is you would hopefully not need a children's hospital, right? That we we advanced so far that we could just have it all figured out. That's right. (laughs) Gene therapy and so many things, cancer immunotherapy, so many of the things that we're doing every day and the research that we're doing every day is to eradicate certain childhood diseases or create completely new treatments. Is there anything that you can recall, like maybe early on, like just this crazy idea and now is like standard? I would say every day at CHOP, I see something that seemed really you know, out of the ordinary or just so cutting edge that was hard to grasp. You know, one example is fetal surgery. So taking the baby out of the womb, doing surgery and putting the baby back in, you know, 20 years ago, see when I came back to CHOP in 1995 seemed a little outrageous, but now we do it every day and we give hope to families who have babies that have birth defects that they're carrying and just another way that we can treat the baby before it's born. And that's the future in utero treatment and diagnostics. You know, I've seen that evolve over time. Right. I think it's so important to have that perspective, to like think back to those things that today we're like, yeah, but back then you're like, what are you nuts? (laughs) So like, so that when we think about things today where it's like, what are you nuts? Well, you know, maybe that's the thing that'll you know, be standard. When our surgeon in chief came to me and said, we have this opportunity to do a double hand transplant on a boy 
but it's like a really outside chance and it may never happen, but will you give us the okay to do it? I was like, absolutely. If we could be the first to do something like this for a little boy, of course. And four months later, against all odds, it happened. And we were the first to ever do that. A double hand transplant, Mm -hmm. both hands. And a year later, he threw out the first pitch at the Baltimore Orioles game. So it's that attitude of like, again, always raising the bar on yourself and thinking about new frontiers. Yeah. It's just so cool. It's especially cool that it's happening here. Yeah. You have a podcast as well. Mm -hmm. Breaking Through with Madeline Bell is my podcast and it's, you can find it on Podbean and Apple iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. All the platforms you got. (laughs) Yes. You know, I wanted to do this podcast called Breaking Through with Madeline Bell because I get to see these amazing breakthrough stories every day at the hospital, but I just don't have the time or the sort of the venue to package them and get them out to people. So I thought it would be a great way to tell people about the stories, about the unique things that we're doing. You know, a side benefit of it is that a number of people, I've talked with them about their career journeys. It ends up that there's some really interesting career journey threads throughout the podcast as well. Like, how did you become a scientist as a woman? And, you know, it's not about just women, but some really interesting stories about some of the challenges that people have overcome to become physician scientists. What would you say is a common misconception about you? Because I'm a nurse, that physicians won't listen to me. (laughs) People said that to me when I became CEO. They said, well, how are you going to get the doctors to listen to you because you're a nurse? And I was like, well, gosh. Like, I'm still a leader and I'm still the person who basically signs their paychecks. Oh, right. so. I'm a CEO. I'm yeah. their CEO. That's how. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, you get kind of painted with a broad brush that, you know, doctors won't listen to nurses. Hmm. And I, I thought that was a kind of an interesting <laughs> odd thing. In fact, the opposite. I think our physicians very much value our nurses and listen to their thoughts about they're at the bedside 24-7. From your perspective, what is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? Well, for me, because I'm in healthcare, there's certainly a big challenge right now because we're going through bankruptcy of of a couple hospitals in in the city. And I see a lot of division in the healthcare field. I, I think in the past, I saw those of us who were healthcare leaders in Philadelphia really collaborating well and communicating well together. And I think this sort of event in time has created a little bit of a schism in in our camaraderie in the city of Philadelphia. I think that working together uh, across all different healthcare uh, providers uh, and to really solve the city's problems and to think about what the patients or the people who live in Philadelphia need most and how can we work together to make that happen. I think that's really important. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Here's a very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons. Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Matt Glick. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show, you can do so at Patreon.com forward slash PhillyWho. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio, powered by CIC, and was hosted and produced by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Jackson Neal, editing by Max Graham, artwork by Lauren Carhart, music by Lee Rosevere, and special thanks to Sam Schwartz. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time. <laughs>